I want to do, uh, go to the book of Micah today. I've been walking through uh, the Minor Prophets this summer, and part of that is because they have been a, a shadowy region for me. I haven't enjoyed reading them particularly overall. And my thought is, is that if I don't like them, probably you like them even less. And, and yet there's a lot of value in there. And so uh, an attempt to just go after it. And I, and I have to confess to you, some of them I feel like I've owned. The book of Micah is one of those that I'm still working on. You know, even this week, I probably read it a dozen times, did the study, but, uh, and found great passages, but I don't really feel like it's mine yet, where there comes a point with different books where you just know, I got this one, got the message, understand the, the, the tone of it, everything, and um, can't say I'm there yet. But it, I had this confidence at some point it'll open up for me. Each of us has to find that for themselves. And uh, once you do, it's, it's enlivening, and it will never be the same. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I don't think you need to know much about the history of this particular book uh, in that it was written about the same time as the others. Um, the two kingdoms, uh, Israel had split into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. Uh, Judah was around Jerusalem in a little higher elevation, not quite as prosperous. Israel was more on the plains, uh, had the trade routes, uh, stepped into profanity quicker, and um, was into idolatry and everything else much faster than Judah. But Judah didn't lag far behind. You know, they both were going down the wrong path. Um, what this particular book, like the others, wrestle with is the idea of God's justice and his loving kindness. And I don't want to say that one balances out the other because that's almost like, oh, you got too heavy on justice, Lord, get over to, to kindness, you know, and back. That's not the way it works. But it, we have to understand the application of both because he applies both to us and, and he functions in both. And, and so as we walk through these books, uh, it's really important to, to say, okay, there are times when he punishes his people. And it's not out of um, just a, a revenge and, you know, I, I don't like you. But it's, it's more of he's, he has a goal in mind of bringing in a restoration and a rebuilding. And actually, in this book, he promises them a better end than what they had even in that day. And that's something that, that we have to walk through. Also in this book, there's declaration that a Messiah is coming, a ruler, one who will take charge over all things. So even as we've gone through these books, I think it's been important to realize that God speaks to the nations. He doesn't speak to just individual groups, just Israel. So the, the fact remains that he has a hand in every nation's condition and affairs. And so when we look at our country and, you know, the argument goes, was it a godly nation? It wasn't a godly nation. And it's founding. We can go back and we, it, it, it's not that the, the central issue is, is, does he have his hand on us now? And does he have a, a, a working in what's going on? And, and the absolute answer is yes. And uh, so I just want to walk through this. 
the first few verses uh, make this declaration of God is going to exert himself in this setting. And so he tells them, he says, the Lord is a witness against you. He says, he will come down and tread upon the high place. The mountains will melt and the valleys will split open. So he's making a declaration. He says, things will not be the same after I show up. After I exert my judgment, it is not going to look the same. He goes on to say, Samaria will be a heap in the open country. So that's the, like the, the center point of Israel. And then he makes a statement in the next few verses. He says, uh, Judah, her wound is incurable. In other words, there is an irrevocable thing going to take place because you can't cure this wound. And then he mentions Jerusalem, its central city as well. That said, I want to go back to Hosea for just a minute and look at some of what we saw in that past particular book. And the tension that you felt there is similar to what happens in this book. He makes these declarations, and then he comes back and says, but I love you, and I'm going to continue to invest in you. That's really important. Because oftentimes, even with our own sin, we look at things and say, will God receive me back? You know, when we, when we come to terms with how horrific our sin is, and there are times when it's right there in front of our face and we're going, I can't forget this, and I don't know how God would possibly let it go. We have to recognize that his heart is for love. And so in Hosea, he says, uh, I can't let you go. I can't give you up. My feelings are much too strong. I won't lose my temper and destroy you again. I won't stay angry. So that's one of the aspects we realize of being described in human terms. It comes across and God's going, I don't hold my anger forever. And I, my love just keeps coming through. And so even though you're going to taste my anger in this punishment, you've got to know that love is going to win the day, so to speak. A little later on, he says, you've rejected me, but my anger's gone. I'll heal you and love you without limit. He was making those declarations before he ever punished them. And he's making this, this statement. He says, you've turned away from me, and uh, my anger is going to be expressed, but... Uh, I just can't stay angry forever. That's not the way I function. It's a beautiful insight. What draws my heart to these books during this season is that we're in a culture that's very afraid to say anything negative, right? Just speak positive. And we also are in a culture where any form of punishment to a child is looked at with skepticism and criticism and it's like, you are stomping out creativity in life. And with that, there's a, a warning to just ignore that anything negative could ever happen in a person's life. And anything said of a negative fashion would really destroy. There are times when we need to hear from an honest friend that would say, you're not particularly good at this, and it doesn't matter how long you chase it, it's not going to happen. 
I am not a professional athlete, never was. Even though I dreamed of that as a kid. Shooting hoops hour after hour. Did win the B-League championship at college in intramurals. <laughs> Impressive, huh? <laughs> at some point, you're going, nah. It's not my life. But we're afraid to say that as a culture. And we're afraid to step in and, in a sense, take charge of situations. If we don't get a handle on this, then it's very hard to understand this passage out of Hebrews 12. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This comes out of Proverbs. He says, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. So the declaration is being made as a part of God's love, he exerts discipline into our lives. It's an expression of love to step forward and say, no, this isn't appropriate. He says, be careful that you don't treat it too lightly. That you don't ignore it, that you don't refuse it. You know, every parent, when they discipline a child, there's, a, there's a, this feeling of, if the kid just kind of blows them off and says, that didn't hurt much, you're kind of going, you haven't learned your lesson and this is only going to come back again and, and bite you. The other side of it is, to get discouraged, you know, don't become weary in this, you know, the, is to get discouraged and say, I don't even know if he loves me. I don't know if God cares for me. And, and then into parent, I don't even know if my folks love me after this. You know, and sometimes you have to bring that word of affirmation and that caring just to, to let them know, no, I love you deeply. That's why this took place. So the declaration is made. Now, are you going to toss out the scripture and accept cultural relativism? You know what I'm saying. I'm not going to get it out, though. Or are you going to embrace what the scripture says and say, this is truth, and somehow I've got to find the application for life? That's the option. But it goes on. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you, sons? Okay. The next one. For it is for discipline that you have to endure, for God is treating you as sons. In other words, when you walk through a form of punishment or discipline, it is not pleasant. But the enduring is part of the process and actually a honing and development of your life. He says, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's an interesting statement. In other words... This is what's appropriate for fathers to do. You have your choice. You're going to embrace the scripture or you're going to step away from it. But that's what the declaration is being made. If you're left without discipline in which you all participate, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. He said you're a bastard if you don't get that kind of instruction. Now, 
Many, many in our culture have grown up without father figures. And father's stepping in, and in some ways, you've been put in a hole, but through the Lord, you're coming out, so to speak. But let's not pretend that it isn't a deficit. Let's not pretend that that's health. Let's acknowledge that God's design is for fathers to invest themselves in their children in such a way that it brings them into well-being, the training of their lives, so to speak. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjected to the Father of spirits and live? Again, this is being written from a perspective that said, God deals with you this way. It's important that we embrace that even into our family setting, in a sense, modeling what God does so that there's a better understanding of his treatment of us in life. Because he is not stepping away from it. He is not refusing to invest himself in us. He has not turned away. He is not treating us as illegitimate. He treats us as his children, and so that means that he's going to be pouring himself into us, and sometimes that comes across as discipline. So we, we have to look at that and then begin to say, what's taking place in my life now? What am I dealing with, and what is God's voice, and what is he wanting to declare to me? Or am I just taking it lightly and refusing it because God doesn't deal that way? Or he wouldn't treat me that way. You know, that's refusing it. Or the other side that says, I am so worthless and I'll never, you know. No, that's not the way he sees you. The very fact that he's investing says that he wants to bring some good out of it. He wants to bring wholeness in life. He says, in the moment, all discipline seems painful. In the moment, nobody likes it. Nobody appreciates the pain associated with it. But he says, it produces, it yields the fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. So again, he's saying, this has value if you embrace it. This is, a, you know, this is an appropriate understanding of how God deals with us. Now back to Micah. <laughs> we'll see how far we get. I want you to note a couple things. In the 16th verse, Micah makes a prophecy. He says, you're going to be hauled off into exile. So he says, in a sense, the punishment that's coming to you is that you're going to be carried out of your homeland. So that's a specific prophecy that came true. He says, there are people around you saying, don't preach that. Don't be talking all that negativism. You know, don't be saying those things. You know, so it's, it's very similar to the voices that we hear. He says, you know, in some ways, the right preacher for this culture is saying, I'll preach to you of wine and strong drink. That would be the preacher of the people. That'd be something they could embrace. So he goes, there's different voices. 
hollering, but he says, this is what you need to hear. He says, Micah says, 3 verse 8, I'm filled with the power of the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So he's saying, as unpleasant as it is, this is what you've got to hear. And that's what's being declared to them as a people. Now, what happens is, is that he'll walk through the book and he'll declare some of the disaster that's going to come to them. And then he comes back with positive declarations saying, but God is going to do this. And so this is one of this, God is going to do this passages out of chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. And the people shall flow to it. So he's saying, you know, earlier, even though Jerusalem's going to be wiped out and, and people are going to be hauled off, he says there is a day in the future when it is going to be a prominent place and people are going to be flocking to it. He says, many nations shall come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. And from out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So he's saying there is coming a day when it is going to be a hub of decoration of what God does. And people are going to go there looking for direction and help. He says he will judge between many peoples. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So that's a very positive and wonderful declaration. He says we will seek the Lord God forever and ever. He says, I will, in this verses 6 and 7, I will assemble the lame, those who have been driven away, those whom I have afflicted, and to the lame I will make the remnant of those who are cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them. So he's saying, even though people have been spread all over the place, and even though they've suffered crippling circumstances, he says, I'm going to draw back that remnant and I'm going to build something out of it. Um, in the ninth and 10th verses, I just want you to note, he says, you're going to be hauled off into Babylon. And at that point, Babylon really wasn't even prominent. It was more Assyria. But he's still making this declaration in the future. And, and obviously, it came through. Judah was hauled off into Babylon. Okay. He says, there is also coming a day when many nations will surround Israel and their plan is to attack and destroy it. And he makes a declaration and says this, they don't understand the Lord's plan. He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. He says, nations will march down on Jerusalem. They have no idea what's going on. They assume they're going to destroy they will be destroyed in the process. One of the prophecies made. Chapter 5. I know we're racing through. You're grateful, aren't you? There's seven chapters. Okay. Chapter 5. This is one that we always read at Christmas time. O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, little, little village, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come... Forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel. 
we read it at Christmas because we know that that's where Jesus was born. And so again, he's looking down the road 700 years in advance. Now, I, I, I assume he had no clue as to when. He just sees this event and goes, Bethlehem, little Bethlehem. Something powerful is going to take place out of that little, little town. He shall give them up until the time, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So he says there will be a gathering after he comes. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in strength and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and he shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. He says this, this is going to have impact in the whole world. Amazing, isn't it? With what shall I come, Lord? Sixth chapter. Micah asks the question, how do I make peace with God? If I recognize that his discipline is being exerted on our nation, and if I recognize that he is exerting discipline on my life, how do I get back on good track or good side of him, so to speak? That's the question that's being asked in this moment. He says, what do I do? Do I make a lot of burnt offerings? Is, you know, a thousand animals, is that going to buy his favor? Rivers of oil? Or my firstborn child? There have been times when all of us have been willing to do that. <laughs> or at least thought about it. But no, it's, it's saying take the thing that's so precious to you. Would that buy his favor? What can I do for my transgression, for the sin of my soul? And this is Micah 6.8. This is one we had the kids memorize. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, I have to read it, otherwise I'd learn it as I learned it as a kid. <laughs> to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Three things, justice, loving mercy or kindness, and walking humbly in obedience. You know, we've, we've spent a lot of energy on the obedience side of things, and we, we talk regularly about the loving kindness, but justice often gets left out of the equation, and yet it's very, very important that we look at it and say, what can I do that brings justice around me? You know, I, it's not enough for me to look and say, well, our country should do this, because truth is, they're not calling me up every day. Yet. <laughs> not going to happen. I'll treat it as telemarketing anyway. <laughs> I won't answer. It's a Washington call. It must be raising money. No, no, it, we have to bring it into the realm of our lives. And so sometimes that's an application in marriage and family. Sometimes it's with neighbors. Sometimes it's in a church. Sometimes it's friends at work. It, it just, 
But we have to allow God to speak to us on this issue because it's precious to his heart. And so it's important that we don't just, well, I got two or three. Two-thirds passing grade, sort of. You know, it, it, no, it, 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 it's all precious to him. It's important that we embrace it. This is, uh, in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, he goes back one more time and addresses some of the complications of what the Lord's discipline in our lives looks like. And in this particular statement, he says, often there's a futility of investment. That there are times if you feel like you're just spinning your wheels, maybe it's because you haven't been listening. Or there are times when you're going, it's just not working out. Yeah, because he's had to pull that away from you. Remember when we were looking at Hosea and he's going, I'm going to take your wealth away because you've treated that as being precious to you. In each of these books, he says, no, you're not going to be able to rely on a king anymore because you, you assumed that having a king and government set in place, then life would be good. Get the right government, get the right rulers, and it's all smooth, right? Well, that's close to what we think today. But he's making a declaration in these books saying, nah, it's not the king that's going to save you. Not your wealth that's going to save you. And he, and he goes on and, and just says, your idolatry is not getting it done. These things you make with your hands. He says, you're going to eat and not be satisfied. You're going to be hungry within. You're going to put away but not preserve. He says, I'm going to take it and I'm going to give it to the sword as well. You're going to sow but not reap. You'll tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You'll tread grapes but not drink the wine. All of that is futility. It's like stepping into something and investing and pouring your energies into it. Nothing. Why? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. If I'm putting all my energy into this and there's no fruit out of it, why? Could it be that God wants my attention? Now, if we regard lightly Lord, the Lord's discipline, what happens? Oh, no, that's not the way he treats people. I just have to try harder. Or I got to find another avenue. Yeah, I'm going to meddle. It's like these get-rich schemes. I'll sell this, and I'll be rich. And a few months later, oh, that didn't quite make me rich. It's this item. And then this item. And then this item. When do you wake up and say, maybe that's not supposed to be? Or maybe that's not my thing? Or, you know, it's, it's like, if I go to school and I get this degree and I, then life will be sweet. Well, 
if you have the Lord's hand guiding your steps into career, then I anticipate that you can expect the Lord's blessing in His measure as to what He sees appropriate for your life. But if, if you short-circuit it and say, it doesn't matter what choice I make, or if you say, it is the avenue to make me wealthy and have everything work out, or you say, then I will be happy because I'm doing what I want, um, there's no guarantee. Sorry. Same can come true even in, in marriage, right? I get this person, they look this way, they do this, they think I'm the greatest, it'll all be sweet. And then you wake up. And it's not quite like that. And your selfishness is being challenged on a daily basis. Well, it's appropriate. But learn. <laughs> That's the challenge. Rather than spending 40, 50, 60 years fighting what isn't supposed to be. Okay. Enough of that. Chapter 7. I just want to close with a couple passages. Of, he said, as for me, I'll look to the Lord. I'll wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So he says, even in all of this depravity around, and even though many are going down a road that does not acknowledge God, he says, I know there's one source of hope. There's one solution. He says, I'm going to look to God because I know that he hears. And he goes on to say, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I will rise. I shall rise again. I shall rise. Okay. I sit in darkness. The Lord will be my light. He says, You can look at me and some things are falling apart in my life, but know this, it is not the final story. Not the end of the day. He says, there is coming a resurrection because of who I'm associated with. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will look upon his vindication. He says, I will embrace what God is doing even in the form of discipline. Because I know that that's not the final story. His goal is to bring me into health and, and into well-being in Him. His plan is to bring me into a better place than what I was. He has good intent for my life. Even though there are periods of darkness and complications that I can't understand. He says, who is God like you? pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Again, we were talking about parenting earlier. This is another one of those good insights. Do not retain your anger. Let love continue to rule. In other words, anger calls you to a response and an action. But know this, that to remain in that and just stay there, that's not God. 
our God <laughs> comes back and expresses love steadfast. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Praise to the Lord. If you've been challenged by a particular sin in your life and you're not sure if God's going to forgive you, this should speak encouragement, right? Tossed into the sea. Sent away. If you're walking through a, a time of discipline or punishment and you say, things aren't working out, it's important to embrace, what is God doing in this and where does he want to take me? What is his good intent for my life in coming out of this? Where does he want to place me and put me so that I can flourish in him? Uh, you know, so I'm not in that mushroom darkness spot, but rather in a place where I can bloom in fullness for him. True repentance involves justice, loving kindness, and humility, walking in. Let that be a part of our lives. Would you stand with me? Lord, we acknowledge the truth of these passages, and we'd ask that you'd bring them into our hearts in a way that speaks life. Lord, where we have refused to acknowledge your hand of discipline, Forgive us for that, but help us be tender-hearted and quick to respond to you. Where we've grown discouraged and taken the approach that he must not love me or he must not care anymore, forgive us for that as well. And help us to embrace that your love never fails. Then, Lord, help us to walk forward in the fullness of life that you intend to exert over us. Amen. Love getting a second chance at some of this. In the Hebrews passage, it says, Our fathers disciplined us seemed best to them. There are times, in a sense, this, this acknowledges the frailty of fatherhood, where a dad is doing his best but not always getting it right. And so, you know, there's an embracing that even though. Our earthly fathers are doing their very best. It doesn't always work out perfectly. And, and you know, as I mentioned, some of you came out of a deficit, so to speak, where you didn't have even an earthly father to help instruct you. The goodness of our God is that he is willing to teach us as a father. And he is also willing to send others into our lives to help with that role if we'll embrace it. And so there are times when he brings mentors our way or voices, father figures, so to speak, that are willing to speak life or speak directly or just say, you're not getting it. But at the same time, what this does is this allows us to move into fullness of what we have. So it's not just looking back and say, well, it's all messed up because my dad did this or my dad wasn't even around. But it's embracing of the Father who is here and now and speaks into our life. And so I encourage you, allow him to take you down that path. 
and to, in a sense, fix what isn't straight, to correct what needs to be corrected. That's available to each of us. So, okay, there's opportunity for prayer. It's easiest if you come forward. But if you wait long enough, we're going to find you anyway. How's that? We're going to leave it in open-ended worship. Just encourage you. Some of these things need to be walked through. Do not get out of here before you settle. Okay? Your blessing rests on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy your investment into them. Both in the joy that they receive through untold blessing, but also through the discipline that brings the fruit of righteousness. Be exalted and lifted up. As each one goes into the community, Lord, I ask that you give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Just taking place right now, kind of a soberness over the group, but at the same time, an awareness that God is speaking. And uh, I guess the longer I'm in this, the more there's an awareness that the need is to respond when the moment is there. So I just encourage you to continue in Him this way. And let Him speak as He will in your situation. You know, it, it may be He needs to reveal his love to you even though you're thinking oh, I'm so wretched or I need to no maybe you're just not embracing what he really wants to say you know that yes you are forgiven and, and he wants to show you how good and how, how much he does think of you uh, it may be that you're waking up and going oh, I've been walking an edge here that's not very good and it's profane and it's appropriate even in that to say, okay, Lord, but where does this go? Because his intent is, his intent is good. That's the, the beauty of this. And so just, uh, it's a beautiful moment, and it's a beautiful time to just see it through to what the implications really are.